Welcome to Diary of a Professional Tennis Coach with Mark Gellard and Candy Reid. Welcome to the latest edition of Diary of a Professional Tennis Coach with WTA Tour Coach Mark Gellard and me, Candy Reid. Today we chatted about the return to form of Danielle Collins, the difficulties of switching surfaces, the North American summer swing and how the pros handle the nerves and anxieties of the tennis tour along with a load more terrific tennis topics. We hope you enjoy it. Mark, it's been a few weeks. We had, of course, Piotr Szczespotowski, former coach of Iga Świątek, current coach of Shelby Rogers last time we spoke. Any uh, thoughts about that before we get on to last week and this week and, of course, the US Open summer swing? Hey, Candy. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening. And I'm sure Piotr will be very happy with your pronunciation there. That was impressive, (laughs) his last name. Yeah, um, it's been a few weeks since we spoke, but uh, eventful for us, um, traveling around, playing tournaments after our training block post-Wimbledon. So um, just uh, getting back into the swing of things now, being on the road as always, and um, yeah, hoping to start our results moving in the right direction soon. Now, Piotr was pretty controversial, I think, with a few things he said. And I don't know if you've had any feedback from podcast listeners. He he was talking very much, wasn't he, about players not playing as much and actually going into tournaments thinking that if they can't win it, perhaps they shouldn't be playing and they should only play the tournaments they can actually win. Any uh, thoughts just thinking about what we talked about? It was quite a long and interesting interview. It was, yeah. I think um, I think it was nice because, you know, he's obviously so successful as his coaching resume shows and him and I differ on opinions on a lot of things, but there's a big mutual respect between us. So it's um, I think it was a real productive conversation. Having spoke to a few people since that that listened, I think there was I think there was a split. It was interesting. They said that both of us raised some interesting points, but I don't think there was um, a consensus one way or the other. So I think it's Mm. a nice debate and it's brought up some interesting points. And of course, it, a lot depends on who you're coaching because Iga Swiatek and Shelby Rogers are in completely different dimensions, even though they're brilliant pros, aren't they? Top 50 players. You've got one player right at the top and one player who's sort of fighting for points and prize money each week. Yeah, I think that's such an important part. It was interesting yesterday here in Cincinnati, we had a, a WTA event. And one of the things that, that I sort of questioned them on was how much of the data do you show the player and how much do you keep for yourself? Mm. Because if you tell certain players, listen, we're always missing this kind of a shot, that can just make things worse. So, you know, just like you said with Piotr and I's discussion, um, sometimes I think it, that's the art of coaching is knowing what parts of information do you tell the person because you don't want to cause the paralysis by analysis. <laughs> but at the same time, you need to keep them informed. I mean, players like Andy Murray, for example, he he wants to know everything, right? He wants to know the guy's forehand strength, backhand, what he had for breakfast, you know, what his results are. I mean, he wants to know everything. Whereas other players, they don't like so much information. So I think, um, yeah, that that discussion with Piotr was really, it was interesting. Hopefully for the listeners as well. Yeah, it was it was really good. Someone uh, as amazing as him, because obviously he's come up and, and brought Iga with him. Uh, they started off pretty much together, didn't they, as a professional team, and he took her to the Roland Garros title. You mentioned there, Mark, uh, you're in Cincinnati, you were in Montreal last week. It's interesting because the men this year are in Toronto, the women in Montreal, and then it flips. Have you got any preference as to where you play, Montreal or Toronto? Do you look forward to one more than the other? You know, I look forward to whichever one has the best weather. And uh, this year, <laughs> Montreal was pretty rough. I mean, we played... 
Vika, uh, and it took. We had three times we were stopped, and then in our doubles we had three times that we were stopped on that as well. So it was quite frustrating, but mm-hmm. obviously um, we didn't handle it very well. And it's the same for all the players. It's just frustrating. I think if you ask the players and the coaches, what's the most important thing? It will be weather. You know, because there's so much uh, anxiety and frustration when things don't go, you know, when you're waiting all day at the courts, it's tough. But Montreal and Toronto do a great job. Facilities are superb. The treatment, everything from transport to food to the uh, facility is top, top draw. So you can't, no complaints. And what about the waiting area when you are waiting for rain? How is the waiting area and what generally do you do? How do you prepare to go back on court when you're not sure when you're going to be allowed on court? It's really tricky uh, with the rain delays because, you know, the frustrating thing is, is when the tournament will cancel, you can cl- clearly see it's pouring with rain. The forecast is bad for the next four hours, five hours, but they only postpone you 15 to 30 minutes at a time. So, you you know, you're, you're stopped at one o'clock, you come off, it's pouring and they'll say, well, no play before one fifteen. Yeah, well, no shit, <laughs> Sherlock. I mean, <laughs> it's, it's pouring outside. And the frustrating part with that is that then the player doesn't know what to do. Do I go eat some lunch? You know, do I go change, shower? Do yeah. I get some treatment? What do I do? So that's that's the frustrating part of that. But what was great with the Montreal tournament is the player sort of hub is in the indoor courts. So they've really, it's a huge open space where they've got a gym and a restaurant, stringing area, locker rooms, cafe. So I think they do a really nice job there and the players really appreciate that. Space is really important. So when Magda comes off for a rain delay, as you mentioned, there were three in the singles against Vika Azarenka. I presume you do a short debrief. You're also chatting with Ian Hughes, and then perhaps you can relax, go and eat some lunch, maybe chat with a few other people if you know it's going to be a few hours. I mean, I don't think you should be asking me what we talked about between the rain delay this time, because whatever we said really didn't help. <laughs> um, we we lost the first set, and then things kind of really got away from us after that. And it's it's funny because when I talked to Magda after the first set, she her impression was that things were going okay and that she was starting to find our way and then you know when we went back out there it just didn't go to plan so yeah once you come in I think you try to keep it light again know your player but keep it light talk about a couple of you know two to three maximum real simple things reminders that you've already discussed and then she typically as soon as we know that we've got enough time before we're going to be back on uh, she'll go shower change and then come out and grab a, usually a plate of pasta with some chicken something like that and then Ian and I will just you know make sure we're all you know kind of on the same page with our notes and what what the plan is do you think sometimes you're out coached I I didn't actually watch the match because I was in Eastbourne at the time but sometimes do you think you set out a plan and then the opponent actually has a better plan or one that sort of nullifies your plan um, do you see that a little bit like a chess match and you think, oh, no, this is out of our control, that this wasn't what we were expecting? Yes, absolutely. I don't think that was the case this time. I think that, you know, we or I didn't do a good job in that rain delay of getting her in the right men's mindset for that second set. And when she went out there, she wasn't prepared to play the way we needed to. And Vika's a tough player, right? She's a mm. great competitor. I think that she, she knows that we know that she knows that we know that she knows what we're <laughs> going to do. It's kind of like that, right? You you know, and they've practiced together and everyone knows what is going to happen. Uh, it's just going to be more about who's going to execute at a higher level. I think that sometimes, you know, the mistake what coaches, players make is they trying to find some key. That, you know, oh, this girl, if you can hit two balls in a row to her back end low, she's going to miss. 
just doesn't happen at this mm-hmm. level. There's no like easy secret formula that you can just do this and you're going to win 6262. It, it doesn't exist. It's going to be a freaking grind. It's going to be everything you've got, the best level you can play for two or three hours. And if you're lucky, these one or two things might be the difference in the number of points you, you win and lose. That's it. So there's no magic formula against any player I've ever played at this level. So I suspect having you said that, and that's a really good point, that it actually comes down to the mental challenges, especially when you're taken on and off the court, how up for it you are, how much energy you have on the restart, how much you want it, how many nerves are affecting you, because I'm sure they do even at the the level that Magda and, and Vika are playing at. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they've, they've both, you know, I would say veterans of the tour now, so they've been doing this for a long time. But it's just so difficult because you start, you know, you don't know when you're going back on. And then when you do go back out there, the conditions that you're going back out to are completely different to the ones you left. So maybe, you know, the rain went towards the end of that first set when it was still competitive. We were in involved in a match where it was getting windy and it was dark and you could feel the rain spots already starting to come. And that changes the conditions for the players. And then when we went back out there, you've got this bright sun shining in your eye. It's hot. You know, it's, it's just the conditions change in these kinds of matches. So you just, yeah, and we didn't do a good job of preparing her. She didn't, you know, do a good job adjusting to the conditions and it it all spiraled out pretty quickly. When that happens, I believe the score was 6-3-6 love. During the second set, when you can see things getting away from her, are you using the coaching trial to sort of give verbal, non-verbal signs and try and help her over the line, try and encourage her, try and give some coaching? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's 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 definitely something that's great that the tour, tour has now for us is the on-court coaching, or sorry, the off-court coaching during matches. I would love them to, to see them bring back the on-court coaching where we mm-hmm. used to be able to go on the court once a set. Maybe when the player called you or if the opponent took an injury timeout or a toilet break, I could come on again. I felt that that was where you had more of an impact. I think you can help more. But often in these events, you know, last week was me and Ian are sort of saying things to Magda, shouting them over to her. But the courts are big and you're quite far back. And a lot of times after the match, I'm telling them, why didn't you do, we were telling you to do this and you didn't do it. Because I hear. can't hear you. I can't hear what you're saying, you know. And then there is a towel box near where we're, we're sitting. But for her to come over every time, it's a long distance to walk. She's got to pay attention to the shot clock time. So she can't always come over. Um, so it's it's not as, for me, it's not as good, but it's still better than nothing. But this is was definitely a match of uh, a situation where I think the, the, some off-court, and it's not an excuse because there's no excuses, but off-court during the first and going back on for the restart of the second, some off-court issues occurred that affected her mindset. And that was, uh, that's tennis, unfortunately. It really is. I, I played a competition last week and it's over 35s now, so it absolutely doesn't matter at all. But the nerves totally affected me. The the pressure I felt as being captain of my team, you know, this is absolutely small fry compared to what Magda is facing e- each week. And I think that's a reminder to me when I commentate particularly how hard this game is mentally because you can start to lose confidence in a shot or something's not working or the opponent's annoying you or the fans irritating you or there's noise over here. There's just so much going on. And I think tennis is an unbelievable difficult sport. And I think it's also so annoying when other people that don't play criticize because they have no idea the difficulties, do they, of what, what is going on on court? sometimes I do encourage coaches and myself included to sometimes maybe go out and do something competitive, go play a practice set or go do something to remind yourself 
of how hard things are. You know, I, I, I think that sometimes we forget and that's what's so impressive to me about those top players that are consistently, when you look at Rafa or Roger, you know, you know that over their 10, 15, 20 years of playing, there's been days where they've had a fight with their wife or girlfriend the night before the match or in the morning, they've been screwed over in some way in the press or media the you know they've they've had a bad night's sleep the baggage got lost on the airline they're upset with their coach and they're able to still put those things to the side and play for that hour two hours however long it is the mm-hmm. lifestyle that we have the traveling around there's so many factors and variables you know that the, w- the following day after the singles we played our doubles match and we went on second after 11 i think we didn't go on to about one o'clock maybe one thirty. we didn't finish that match doubles until I believe it was about 10.30 or 11 at night because we went on at one, start, come off for rain, go back on. We won the first set. We lost the second set. We're down 5-3 in the third set tie break. We come off the court. They send them back on, dried the courts. We warm up again. Magda's got the balls to serve for the first point at 3-5 down. That's difficult to do. You know, you're down 3-5. You haven't played for five hours. Mm -hmm. And you know that one slip up here and you could be in big trouble. This match is over. And we're down 3-5 and she bounces the ball, just about to toss it and the rain just pours again. Oh my gosh. Back in we go for another two or three hours. You know, so then you come back out and eventually we get back out. Then we lose 10-8 in the third set breaker. Um, Yeah, it's tough. And then you you finish the match at 10-30-11. As you're walking back into the lounge, from the court, you're already looking on your phone and on orbits.com for a flight to Cincinnati the next day. And if they're listening, orbits, I wouldn't mind a sponsorship from you guys. Um, <laughs> but you know, we, we we you know we're immediately looking because we want to get to Cincinnati now. We need to get there the next day, and then we're we're on that doing that for two hours. Their their site crashes, Delta Airlines site crashes. And, uh, you know, we end up that I fly separate. Ian and Magda left in the morning on a flight and I left later in the day because there was only two available. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's it's all this stuff. And now we get to here. We go to practice yesterday. First two minutes into the practice, it, the heavens open. It rains again. So we miss our morning practice. Yeah. So then we haven't practiced on site. So we got off site practice with Sloan Stephen, a really nice high facility. It's, it was incredible, but it's not the same conditions. Finally, we were able to get on site this morning for just an hour with Barbara Krejcikova. So that was good, but it's not, you know, it's not easy. And and no. I, that's why I like listening to these guys on online that think they can coach and they think that coaching is uh, <laughs> on the tour the same as at the clubs because it's it's a whole different kettle yeah, of couple, fish. A couple of drop balls and they're suddenly a tennis coach, aren't they? Do you think the exactly. people that do that so well, the top, top players, do you think that's born in them or do you think they're working with an amazing psychologist I've had this conversation actually recently with Magda because when I, you know, we've talked about, you know, Iga, for example, how good she is. I mean, she's she's just so consistent and um, so focused. And I wondered, you know, she obviously has a team around her that keeps things and keeps her in line, keeps her straight. If she didn't have them, if she was alone or she had a different team, Piotr would have been good to ask for this, but he gave us some sort of insights. Would she as be as good? Because she definitely is so focused right now. I think it's probably a bit of both. I, I, yeah. And again, Piotr would have been the guy probably gives you a real insight in that. But for me, I think probably you have to be 
a lot of skills involved that have nothing to do with tennis. It's the discipline. Are you a disciplined person? Are you a person that's willing to, to sacrifice, be comfortable being uncomfortable? And the mental side means so much, doesn't it? Uh, we see some players so mentally strong, others so mentally fragile. That certainly affected me when I was playing tennis. What about you? There was too many voices in my head that I couldn't put to, to sleep. Basically, it was just, and I think I think if you read Rafa's book, I've read, and and, and all these guys, they they all have the voices. It's just, mm-hmm. can you turn the volume on them down and turn the volume up on the good ones? Because they're all got doubts. There's no no question about it. Um, I think Caroline Garcia. I I I I shouldn't probably quote this because I haven't read the full context of what she said, but it was something along the lines of, you know, some of my worst fears have come true recently. Um, but I've realized that I'm still here, I'm still alive, and I'm still playing tennis. I need to get the full context, but I think she's referring to the fact that, you know, she had a really great year last year, sort of yeah. from the middle of the year on, and probably hasn't gone as well as she'd hoped since that. And she hasn't defended some of her titles, like she didn't defend Warsaw last week, where she, you know, um, beat eager actually last year. She hasn't defended that now she's got to defend Cincinnati and a few others. So I'm sure that there's a lot of fears that she's had about not defending and what's going to happen to my ranking and this and that, you know what, nothing's going to happen. You're going to drop a bit and you'll go back and play great tennis again. It's, um, but it's totally different, isn't it? As an outsider, it's a tennis match, but when you're in it and things are going wrong, that's when it just feels like you want the world to swallow you up. You feel, start feeling sorry for yourself and nothing's working for me. And it's overcoming that, isn't it? And I, I know everybody has that and to certain degrees, but the best ones I think can shut it off quicker than others. It's interesting to me, if you go watch the juniors, you know, the under 10s, 12s, 14s, you watch those kids playing, every match they play is the most important match in their life. And that's, you know, they, they, there's so much pressure in every match. And that's, I suppose, um, you know, what some of the, well, all of these pro players feeling but I think they're able to rationalize it a little bit more and I know you know talking with Ian over the last year or two is like what one of the things that Novak is so good at is he you know he hates losing I mean that you have to hate losing to be a top player in any in any sport you know I always said to make that you, you show me a good loser and I'll show you a loser mm. so you know you have to hate losing but you have to learn how to lose and that was something I never did and I still haven't learned how to lose. And I think there's top players that don't always maybe take what they should from a loss and go use it the right way. They're, you know, it becomes too personal or there's too much anger. Mm. Um, Magda's been really good at that over the last few years of her career, far better than I am still and ever was when I played. She does keep a cool, calm head on her shoulders. Yes. Yeah. We still don't have any board games left in my house. From I mean, Magda says to me, why we never play cards or or board games like all the other players in the lounge <laughs> or restaurant? And I said, you know why? Because it will not end well if I lose. It will not. That, that board game is not going to be on the table the, anymore. The new game is 52 card pickup when Mark loses. Exactly. Exactly. I'm not a good loser. So that was <laughs> another reason why I wasn't a good player. <laughs> Talking of a competitive spirit, we've seen uh, Danimal, Danielle Collins, come back to the tour pretty strong after a pretty average year. She sort of broke out, didn't she, at last year's Australian Open, got to the final, um, and then did some good things last year, but just hasn't hit the heights again. Are you surprised that she's sort of found her form? No, not really. She's she's just that good. I mean, she's she was, I think, number one college player, um, final of Australian Open a year and a half ago. I know she had some... F- 
health issues, but her level is is always she's such a dangerous player because because like Azarenka, I think what makes her dangerous is that she's just such a good competitor. So even if she's not playing well, you know she's still going to make your life miserable, mm. and that's what I think is always the toughest ones. You know, the ones that are, you, you, they're going to bring that. I was happy to see Dan Evans did well. He won a tournament. He won Washington about a week or two ago, um, which was good because I know he's he's openly said recently. I think that I read that he said he'd like to be anywhere except a tennis court right now. Um, that he just cannot find his game, and so it just shows. You know, you just got to keep staying that course, and it will come. It's a marathon, not a sprint. You just got to keep reminding yourself, however difficult. I remember Dan saying he was embarrassed at one point by his performance, and and that's not a, a fun place to be. And we've seen uh, Iga Swiatek in Montreal with her mouth taped closed, and I wonder if you have any thoughts on that. There was a lot going round about the benefits of that with nasal breathing. I think that it has some. I I don't know. If, I think there's a lot of confusion. This about two years ago, I looked into something for Magda that um, I wanted to see if I could boost her cardiovascular VO2 max capabilities, et cetera, improve that that area. So I looked into a lot of these masks that you can buy. They look very nice. They're 50 bucks, but you put them on. And um, basically what they do is there's two or three different versions. One looks like a snorkel, just okay. a mouthpiece. And the other one looks like a Darth Vader mask. Um, and the point of them is that, you know, you reduce the amount of oxygen you can bring in. So you increase the size of your lungs because they're working harder. Unfortunately, it doesn't work. They believed you could simulate high altitude training. So people that go up into high altitude areas, they do so and they, they are able to build more red blood cells yeah. because of the oxygen being thinner. It's legal blood doping, basically. And then you would have the benefits. Unfortunately, it just doesn't work that way with a mask. For example, for elderly people, one of the ways that, you know, you tell people when you get older, make sure that you keep your heart rate getting high once or twice a week through exercise. And, and they say, well, I can't run that fast and I can't, you know, ride that hard to get my heart rate up. Okay, no problem. Give them a straw right. and ask them to sit on the bike or walk with a straw in their mouth because that will just reduce the amount of oxygen that can get in and out. The heart rate will go up because it has to work harder. And there you go. So it's a similar principle. I do use, um, not tape, but I use this snorkel type thing with Magda for the last couple of years. Because what it does do is it brings attention to the breathing because you can hear it. Like breathing underwater with a mask, you can really hear that mm, sound. So yeah. it helps her to regulate and not sort of panic breathe like you would do with somebody that has an anxiety attack. They'd use a paper bag over their mouth. That's all that's doing is bringing attention to their breath. No way am I creating, uh, uh, increasing her VO2 max or her lung capacity is doing none of that, but it is creating an awareness in her breath. But although the nose breathing is a nice idea because, you know, they say that breathing through your nose is better because it filters the air, it moisturizes and uh, hydrates or humidifies the air so that when it hits your lungs, it's warmer. So then okay. it's easier for the lungs to absorb it and transport it to the muscles. It's nice, but the but ultimately, you know, your body needs if it needs more air, and it's going to open its mouth as well to to suck in as much as it can. Hmm. So, um, you know, there's the, the science on 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 that is really, from my knowledge and what I've researched over the last couple of years, it's not existent on. You know, now if they're using it for the, for the same reason I would I did with Magda, I think there's benefits, but it's right. not going to do anything in terms of increasing her lung capacity or anything like that. It was big on social media. Was it uh, big around the locker room, people talking about it? 
I think a few people saw it and talked about it. I think it's um, it's one of those things that I, I, it's a little bit of what I would say is an Instagram uh, <laughs> thing. I think she, I think, and you may know this, but I think she even maybe made a comment that she didn't know what it was for actually when she was using it. <laughs> um, ego, but uh, you know, I, I listen. I think I don't know what their motivation was to use it. Maybe they have something completely different re- reason, and I'm not aware of it. So. Uh, but from from what I've read, most of the comments of the people that have seen it saying, oh, that's great. It's increasing a lung capacity or making a fitter or making it. No, it's it's not yeah. doing any of those things, unfortunately. There are a few funny comments on social media saying they wish that uh, that had been around for Maria Sharapova days would have kept her a bit more quiet. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> All right. So you're in Cincinnati now for the 1000. You were in Montreal last week for the 1000 then. You've got a break week and then it's the US Open. Is that what I'm reading correctly? That's right. Yep. And obviously, depending on how this tournament goes, any thoughts about playing next week before the Open? So typically, we've always played the week before a Grand Slam just to to, to go in with matches um, under our belt. And also New York especially, but all Grand Slams, but US Open tends to be the most draining mentally and physically because it's always really hot in New York. So you get the... the physically drains you and then you've got the courts are quite a long way away from the hotels yes so you know you need to allow 45 minutes to an hour to get into the site so minimum. you've got two hours of traveling minimum right so you've got two hours a day of traveling time pretty much which is which is draining so you get there already and then grand slams is typically so many things for players to do there's maybe a player party there's wta player meetings there's um, events that they have to do that, are, you know, the tournament requests from them. Then usually it's a lot of the agents and the companies, for example, Yonix or or your your clothing company has um, rented hotel rooms there. That's where you have to go pick up what they call your distribution. So you have to go there, pick up all your equipment for the, for the rest of the Asian swing. So it's just very hectic. So playing a tournament often shields you a little bit from doing a lot of that stuff. But this year, the one in Cleveland, we have not entered for a couple of reasons. Firstly, that per year, a player is entitled to two late withdrawals. And we've used both of them. We used one after Australia when we were in, entered in Huahin. And then we used another one in Eastbourne when we decided not to play that this year. So she'll get a hefty fine for any tournament she enters now and doesn't play. Now, yeah. on the flip side, what we could do is request a wild card if they had any available. So that would be something. And that will, uh, if we, the only reason we would play that one now would be as if we struggle this week and we feel like we need some more matches. The second one was just that the, the, it's such a great tournament they run there. But over the last couple of years, the, 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 the center court has been, I would say, a temporarily laid court for that week which is a very different surface to what you would play on in New York at the US Open. And so it's just not been the ideal preparation leading up. However, this year, they've changed that now. and It's a, a regular court they're going to be using. So it makes it much more um, beneficial to the players as a warm-up event. So it's still on the table. Should Magda not do as well in Cincy as you would hope? Exactly. And should uh, Cleveland be willing to give her a, or grant her a, a WTA wildcard? Yep. All right. Uh, so hint, hint, if Magda doesn't do very well, you'll be on the phone pretty soon. Let's talk about um, the balls, Mark, in our next podcast. We could sort of tease that because, of course, uh, there's a little bit of controversy, isn't there, between the Wilson, the red ball and the black ball. It's a uh, different writing. The men were using one last year. The women were using the other. 
This year, they're going to use the same ball. So if it's okay with you, we'll uh, go into depth in that in our next Diary of a, a Professional Tennis Coach podcast. Sounds great. Thanks, Candy, and thanks, everyone, again for listening. Yeah, we'll do it all again uh, next week. Mark Gellard and me, Candy Reid, signing off for another edition of Diary of a Professional Tennis Coach. Keep your questions coming, and uh, next week we'll also be sure to ask Mark all your good questions, put your name as well. You can find us on the Twitter handle, Diary of a Professional Tennis Coach. That's D-O-A-P-T-C. Bye for now. And as an additional side note, Magda did unfortunately lose in the first round of Cincinnati to inform Anne Lee, who pushed Arena Sabalenka all the way in round two. Mark and Ian Hughes did ask Cleveland tournament for a wild card in that tournament but unfortunately it was turned down so they're returning to Florida Magda and team and will continue her US Open preparations down there we'll speak to you next time thanks again for listening